Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's Playlist episode, we're featuring one of the latest interviews from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest experts and policymakers. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. My guest today is Europe's top climate negotiator, the man responsible for the European Green Deal, charged with setting the EU's strategy for becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Franz Timmermans will join me in just a moment. This interview was taped exclusively for foreign policy subscribers. If you've watched one of these before, you know how it works. If it's your first time with us, FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. Many of you have written in to ask questions. I have used some of those in my questioning of Franz Timmermans, but most of all, they've informed me and inspired me. So thank you for sending those in. Let's dive right in. COP27, the global climate summit held in Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh, ended late last month. I spent about 10 days there myself, one of about 44,000 people in attendance. For many climate watchers, the final deal reached at COP this year fell short of addressing the most pressing challenge of the crisis, curbing the widespread burning of fossil fuels. Major emitters in oil-producing states such as Russia and Saudi Arabia blocked any movement or concrete new steps to help the world reach its goal of a 1.5 degree Celsius rise in temperatures or limiting it to that amount. That is, of course, the threshold commonly acknowledged as the point of no return for climate change. The main successes at COP, though, uh, included a historic agreement proposed by the European Union, represented by Mr. Timmermans, to set up a fund for loss and damage. Such a fund would financially compensate the most vulnerable developing nations who disproportionately suffer from extreme weather after climate-related disasters, but emit very little. They contributed very little to the historic problem. Think of the floods in Pakistan or the multi-year droughts in East Africa. 
countries with a very light historical carbon footprint paying the price for the emissions caused by wealthier countries, mostly in the last century. But failing to commit the world's largest emitters to any real phase out of fossil fuels, where does this leave the fight against climate change? What can Brussels do next? How will it continue negotiations with Washington, Beijing, other global capitals? Is there still a reason to be hopeful? So let me bring in my guest to get some answers. Franz Timmermans is the executive vice president of the European Commission, leading its work on the European Green Deal. He also leads the European Union's international climate negotiations. Prior to his current role, he was the first vice president of the European Commission from 2014 to 2019 and served in various posts in the Dutch government, including most recently as Minister for Foreign Affairs from 2012 to 2014. Franz Timmermans, welcome to FP Live. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great to have you on. So let's start with this. Most commentary about COP27 has branded the summit a bit of a letdown. I mean, in short, the world agreed to compensate poor countries for climate-related loss and damage, but the money allocated for this was tiny and there was no agreement to reduce emissions further. Given all of that, I'm curious how you grade COP27. Well, I think it's a, a huge achievement that we now have agreement, global agreement, on uh, a form to compensate for loss and damage. Uh, we will have to do a tremendous amount of work uh, leading up to COP28 to make sure it, it really becomes something useful for especially the most vulnerable states. That's a good thing because we also agreed that it should be concentrated on the most vulnerable states and it should also be have a very broad financing base so not just contributions uh, from uh, states but also uh, explore other uh, avenues such as uh, putting the IFIs in a, in a stronger position to support um, uh, vulnerable countries uh, looking at how uh, MDBs the banks can be in, put in a better position but perhaps even consider things such as a uh, ticket tax or uh, or uh, uh, windfall profit tax. Um, mm. So I think that that will lead to an interesting discussion in the year to come. And I think... Mr. Timmons, I have to j jump in there and ask because, you know, so much of what loss and damage really means is sort of a movement towards justice, a movement towards helping countries in the global south deal with so many of the problems that they didn't create in the first place. Um, agreed that it is an achievement to have even gotten this on the agenda, even though the sum of money promised is tiny. Um, just looking ahead to the next year and the year after, um, since this is about justice, what would represent to you a just outcome? Uh, is there a dollar figure you have in mind of what it would take to truly uh, account for loss and damage in the developing world? Um, or is well, there something else that you see as potentially uh, what you would see as successful a year from now? Well, you know, if you if you want to put a dollar figure on on this uh, to really fix things, uh, you're talking about trillions, and it's clear that uh, states will not put trillions into this. Uh, so you need to look for other ways of creating a stronger feeling of solidarity, the stronger feeling of that we're actually trying to move ahead, and mm -hmm. for that, for for uh, what we uh, for the global north, as as we are called, for us to to be able to convince our constituents to do more, we also have to show that those countries who perhaps 30 years ago were the developing countries, but today are part of the um, 
I would say, industrial and economic elites of the planet also contribute to this. Um, uh, and, and therefore, I, I, I was adamant uh, in, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh to prevent this fund to be based on uh, the same uh, article uh, as previous funds, which would allow countries like China and Saudi Arabia to say, well, we're part of the developing world, so we don't have any obligation, neither legal nor moral nor political, to contribute to this. And furthermore, we could even get something out of this fund. So I think we've broken that logic. And I think increasingly, the most vulnerable countries in Africa and the small uh, developing, uh, the small island developing states understand that although they always operate uh, very closely with the Chinese, that on this issue, uh, they don't necessarily have the same interests as the Chinese. Mm. So I hope this will lead to a debate where also uh, big economies and big emitters such as China and, and uh, successful economies such as Saudi Arabia understand that it is only fair that they would also contribute to the fund. Mm. And if we can get that logic accepted by the international community, I think, I think there will be much more goodwill on all sides. Mm. So let me circle back to another sort of general COP27 takeaway. I mean, of course, um, there was a failure to you know, reduce or, or have more ambitious uh, reductions of emissions. Um, I have to ask, why is it that we keep failing to set more ambitious targets? I, I ask this question as an outsider. Um, you're often in the room where it happens. Uh, what or who tends to hold everyone back? Well, I think um, there's a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, uh, many countries uh, who are not responsible for a lot of emissions uh, concentrate on other issues. They know that reducing emissions by the G20 countries responsible for 80% of global emissions is extremely important, but their urgencies are understandably elsewhere because they're suffering so much and they don't have the means to adapt to the new situation. They don't have the means to fix things and they need the international community for that. So that their main focus is not on reducing emissions, uh, I understand. On the other hand, if we don't reduce emissions, there's no amount of money on this planet that would be enough uh, to fix things uh, when, uh, you know, when we sh overshoot two degrees uh, or even worse. Um, so we need to get back to the conversation where also those countries that themselves are not big emitters do force the big emitters uh, to do more. And um, uh, we will try to do the same. The second element I would like perhaps to, to put to your attention, is that some of the major emitters, although recognizing their responsibility implicitly, um, do not want to be held accountable in the international scene and perhaps want to surprise us later on, etc., uh, that they are succeeding in doing this, but they don't want to sort of commit. And I think that that is something that we really have to look into. I, I you know, in Glasgow, we, we got a strong commitment of phasing down coal. We got strong indications that we would phase down fossil fuels. We got a stronger commitment by the Chinese that they would peak out well before 2030. And on all these issues, um, countries like China and India were not prepared to commit uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. And frankly, by their own constituents, uh, if you can call them that, the G77 and, and, and uh, others, they were not pushed to do that because the attention was far more on it's about time the global north took responsibility 
uh, for adaptation and and uh, loss and damage. So mm -hmm. I think we need to rebalance that discussion um, uh, in the preparation of uh, the COP in Dubai. Mm. You know, it's fascinating that you put it that way, because on the face of it, like politically, it would make sense to make the promises um, because you might not be around um, to be held to account for it. But the two countries you mentioned that um, were least likely or, or didn't want to um, have more ambitious promises, of course, are led by people who ex fully expect to be around for many more years to come. Uh, well, you know, they're, they're happy to make promises for 2050, 2060, 2070, but right. we need promises for 2025, you know. Right. right. Much harder to do if you're a leader who expects to be around or, or is 2030, for example. You know, it strikes me that in, in the last few years, we've moved from purely discussing, discussing emissions reductions to a much broader all of the above approach. And what I mean by this is that leaders seem to have recognized that they need to reduce emissions, but they also need to consider adaptation, loss and damage, also decarbonization. I heard a lot about that when I was at COP. That's the move to remove legacy carbon from the air. But what I want to ask you, Mr. Timmermans, is does this sort of all of the above approach risk failing because it's doing too much at once? Ah, that's an excellent question. And normally you would say, well, let's concentrate on the main issues, but we just don't have the luxury. There's not one issue that we can leave uh, aside for, for a while and concentrate on. We need to do all these things together. And, and I think the sense of urgency has increased uh, because all countries, even the most reluctant, even countries that perhaps a couple of years ago wouldn't even want to talk uh, about the climate crisis, all countries are experiencing this crisis in a very, very serious way, whether it's droughts or floods or failed harvests or completely unpredictable weather patterns, all of them, all the countries on the planet are now faced with this. So the sense of urgency has hugely increased, um, which, which uh, is welcome. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we will need um, to... Uh, concentrate our efforts on trying to keep all these things going at the same time, because you mentioned a couple of things. Yes, we need to uh, 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 save energy. Yes, we need to reduce our emissions. Yes, we need to put a price on carbon, but we also need to develop new technologies. We have to tailor these measures to the specific needs of different countries. Uh, uh, we have to push the private sector to understand they need to uh, transform uh, their production methods uh, much more quickly. We have to look at how our global supply chains are, are working. We need to look at how uh, future uh, industrial uh, ecosystems are going to be constructed, on what scale and in what way. How do we create a circular economy? How do we uh, bring energy to 600 million Africans who today have no access to electricity, for instance, and do this in a way that doesn't suffocate them in emissions? So mm. all these things uh, need to be combined at the same time. That's fascinating. But it's also incredibly complex. Hmm. Given everything we're discussing, given uh, the outcomes from COP27, I know you're a bit more optimistic in your reading of, of what happened there than I am, for example. But given all that we saw, um, do you think, I mean, is it time to just give up on, on the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal? Are you still optimistic about that? What is the point of that goal? Well, the goals on life support, let's be frank, um, but it's not dead. Uh, and as long as it isn't dead, we need to work on it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I've, I've seen the 
the the ambitious plans um, or the ambitious attitude of uh, the United Arab Emirates uh, for the next uh, COP. Um, I also see that um, uh, you know technology is advancing quite fast. I see the potential of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. I see that our policies, the ones we are now deciding in Europe, uh, and, and we have decided a number of them, are helping us to reduce even more than we had uh, expected. So there's also cause to be optimistic about a number of things, uh, but um, it needs a lot of political will and political attention. And it needs it needs that in a situation where the world is confronted with a, a man-made energy crisis, uh, intentionally created energy crisis by Putin, who's trying to bring especially Europe to its knees uh, by using energy as a weapon. Yeah, and um, I'm going to come to Putin and Russia separately uh, just in a little bit of time. But, you know, since you mentioned the UAE, I just want to spend one quick beat on that. I mean, Egypt, obviously, as the host of COP27, um, has its sort of history and even present with fossil fuels. And uh, the UAE, of course, is uh, a massive uh, oil producer. How do you square that with these countries being the hosts for these giant climate summits, um, obviously, they're doing their bit. I get that, but but they are also, um, you know, massive contributors to the problem. True, but at the same time, and this you saw in Egypt, it also focuses the attention of the global north on the problems of the global south. Uh, to have uh, them as uh, a presence of COP uh, in the case of Egypt, Egypt is making a transition to renewables and doing this uh, quite fast. Um, also because it is confronted with huge problems as a consequence of the climate crisis. Um, you know, uh, countries like the Emirates, and Saudi Arabia, Qatar, they understand that there's going to be a world post-fossil fuels. And they do understand that they have some assets today linked to fossil fuels that could also be linked to a global economy post-fossil fuels. And they're trying to, to, to invest in that and they're trying to develop that. And I think they should be encouraged to do that. I also believe, you know, we will uh, have a phase where especially natural gas will be partially decarbonized and part of um, an energy mix. It's not the ideal solution. It's not the end solution, but it is part mm. of the transition to, to renewables. So, mm. you know, I think, I think it's important that we engage also with countries and we give responsibility to countries that initially would not be seen as, as let's say, uh, energy transition champions or climate champions. Mm. I grant you that. I want to spend a few minutes now just discussing China. Um, for me, I think one of the bits of news that emerged from COP, although it actually emerged out of Bali, was that the US and China would resume climate cooperation. Um, and that was very heartening, of course. Uh, I mean, after all, these two countries are responsible for 40% of global emissions. But explain this to me. Um, what does either side have to gain from sort of pulling out of these discussions in the first place. So, you know, sitting in Brussels, how do you and European policymakers think through compartmentalizing what is really the world's most important relationship? So in other words, how do you allow these two countries to compete, but then how do you separate that from the necessary cooperation that they need to conduct? <laughs> yeah, that's quite that's quite a challenge. Um... First of all, um, on climate, um, there was never really a total breakdown of the relationship. Mm. There, there weren't any official talks, but 
Uh, I know that, that John Kerry maintained some informal contacts. We certainly kept talking to, to them intensively. And, and, and to the Chinese. Very close, with the Chinese. Uh, established very closely uh, with Xi Jinping, who's the climate envoy for China, and with members of, of the government as well. Uh, and, and that worked well for us and for the Chinese. You know, for instance, uh, their um, car emissions trading uh, uh, scheme is based on ours, and, and, and we cooperate on, on these things. Uh, um, at the same time, uh, you know, I, I in terms of, of the system we uh, want to live in, in terms of the freedoms we want to have, the democracy we cherish, but we, of course, share all that with the United States and not with China. Um, uh, and and uh, the choices made by the Chinese Communist Party have not made things easier, but have aggravated uh, um, that in the sense that it's become more ideological than we had seen before, which is a challenge to all of us. And uh, we've also learned, you know, uh, we Europeans, uh, once bitten, twice shy. We do not want to create the same level of dependency on China as we sadly had created on, on Russian fossil fuels. Um, so we're also looking at our supply chains and having a dialogue with the Chinese and on, on, on the basis of, of explaining to them that we need to look also after our resilience, but we certainly don't want to slam doors on them. And, and, and that is sometimes a bit of a difference with the US. So I, you know, at, at Glasgow, there would not have been an agreement if not previously, the Chinese and the Americans had come to an understanding in a document on where they wanted to go. That, that was then fed into the COP system and allowed us to come to an agreement. Um, it didn't happen uh, in, in Sham, but it was also too soon because the, the, the G20 and, and, and the COP, they, they coincided in time. So, uh, but it immediately led also to very intensive talks between uh, uh, the United States and China. Uh, but if I can be slightly uh, critical, we mm. are not no longer in a bipolar world. And uh, although these two countries, because they are the biggest uh, economies, if you if you take them individually uh, and, and, and not see Europe as one economy, uh, it, because they are the biggest economy, because uh, they are global players, they tend to think that the world is bipolar, but the world is much more complex than a bipolar world. And we are in a multipolar world, which, by the way, adds to the complexity you mentioned earlier of how we need to tackle this. And I think this was very interesting to see also, you know, traditionally, the G77, there would not be even, you know, a, a, a slight bit of light between the position of China and the G77 until recently. That is mm. changing. That is changing. And we have parts of the world also reaching out to us, Europeans, because they don't want a bipolar world. Latin America, for instance, I had a long meeting with President-elect uh, Lula. He sees his relationship with Europe also as very important. The same to, to Mexico, to Chile. Um, uh, but also, if you look at, at countries like Canada, Australia, uh, you know, the so-called umbrella group of, of countries who are like-minded, New Zealand, they also want to see a multi-polar uh, uh, world, a, a multilateral uh, international uh, community. And, and so, I think I would assume it's a matter of time that also the United States and China, although their bilateral relations will remain very, very important for international relations, will understand that also they need to engage uh, in a in a multi-polar world, uh, which is very complicated. But that's that's where we are. You know, if you look country emerging countries that are taking more and more responsibility in the international scene, 
such as Indonesia, they, they, they will have to, to play a role in this. Uh, um, and they will increasingly. If you see Africa, Africa's rising also internationally, politically, they need to be acknowledged there. And, and, and I, think, I think we, those of us who've been in, in international relations for a long, long time, are both fascinated, but also a bit challenged uh, by these changes which are occurring so fast. But, you know, if we want to have a, a smart and successful diplomacy, we have to acknowledge these changes and also mm -hmm. give a podium to those countries who are claiming that podium. I, so, Mr. Timmons, I could not agree with you more on this. Uh, this is an issue I think about a lot, but given everything you are describing, uh, you know, it's very clear to me that Washington and Beijing have become more antagonistic towards each other. But I would argue that Brussels has sort of, in a sense, followed Washington into this um, in a range of ways and also um, added to this bipolarity by siding more with the United States. Wouldn't you agree with that? Well, as I said, you know, at the end of the day, what you want in your societies, you want your basic values to be maintained. And our basic values are in sync with American basic values. And but if you had to choose, if you had and, to choose and, between values and climate cooperation, how would you navigate that? No, but 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 let me finish my, my thought here. Um, secondly, the transatlantic link is stronger than ever before because we're in we're in this together to make sure that Ukraine remains free and independent, uh, and that and that Russian aggression is not rewarded. So, so that creates also a dynamic between the United States and the European Union that brings us very close closely together. Of course, there are other developments that make things more complicated, like the uh, parts of the Inflation Reduction uh, Act. Uh, but in general, uh, we are very close. But I think I think there is there are quite some differences uh, in our relationship with China. Uh, and, and the United States. We did continue to have these talks. We did have high-level visits to Beijing. Actually, we had one today by the President of the European Council and, and the German Chancellor has, has just been. So, so we do have uh, uh, differences. And, and again, um, it is not uh, just an accident that on climate, uh, the United States and China very, very quick, quickly want to restore their bilateral uh, relationship because I think everybody understands that the climate issue transcends all other political issues. This is about humanity's survival, and I'm not dramatizing. This is just about our survival. And there's no part of humanity that on the basis of ideology or economic position could shield itself mm. from these effects. Mm. And this is for the first time, I think, in, in modern times, that all leaders, even if they are very, very much antagonistic to each other, understand that in this, we better act together, because if, mm. if, if we don't act together, we're not going to fix it. You know, uh, China can often be such a black box for uh, journalists like us. And um, I have heard from, say, uh, you know, John Kerry, um, who has described his relationship with Xi Xinhua, uh, the Chinese climate envoy. Um, clearly, you have also spent a fair bit of time with him. Can you give us a, a little bit more of a sense of uh, what he's like, how much power he actually has, um, how personally invested Xi Jinping might be in tackling the climate crisis? What are your dealings with them like? 
Well, you know, uh, Xi Jinping was a man with strong convictions on climate, uh, with, uh, I find, uh, with courage. Uh, he's, uh, he's, of my Chinese contacts, he's the most outspoken on these issues. He's also willing to engage. Um, uh, and he's willing to take risks. Uh, we saw that uh, in, in Glasgow. And he wouldn't do that if he thought that he didn't have uh, Xi Jinping's ear. Um, mm. uh, so I think, I think you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a classical game of someone who's, who's allowed to play this role, but who could also be sort of, uh, the leadership could take distance from him if he were, were to go too far. So I think it's a very subtle and interesting uh, um, uh, dynamic that we see, but it's been extremely useful for our relationship because, uh, you know, whenever I talk to him and, and we go into great detail on issues and we disagree on many things, obviously, but it's always, um, how should I say this? It's very frank. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you can trust him on what he says and he can trust me on what I say. And that allows us to be to be clear on where we agree and where we disagree and, and how we can charter the way ahead and I would be and I have the same relationship with, with John Kerry and I, I think John has the same relationship with Xi Jinping as well so so that that dynamic you know it's it's don't want to 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 exaggerate my own position but I think this dynamic helped us uh, uh, reach an agreement in Glasgow because at the last moment what the Brits had put on the table uh, was seen as very offensive to to India and China and we had to fix that on, mm -hmm. on that was on, on, on phasing out of coal and it, has, right. it had to be reworded. But we, we did that, the three of us together, um, in a way that, that, that was appreciated by all three at the end of the day. Um, Mr. Timmons, I want to ask you about India, which of course uh, is, uh, you know, has not contributed to the world's uh, climate problems in terms of its legacy, but it is a growing uh, uh, emitter. Uh, it is still uh, continues to open coal-fired plants. I mean, I grew up in India, and I I know firsthand how important uh, growth is for India, um, uh, and how much its people care about that growth, and how it keeps uh, the government in power. In a sense, that imper imperative is very strong. Um, what is your sense of India's move towards? Uh, meeting its climate commitments, were you disappointed that they they could have been more ambitious? Well, frankly, I'm I'm totally fascinated by what's happening in India because when I started in in, in this business, India was usually very dismissive uh, of the whole problem uh, created by uh, the industrialized world. Uh, if we did too much, we would stifle India's potential. You remember that very well, and now we're in a completely different place. Uh, you know, um, uh, India has announced that it will want to build 600 gigawatts of renewables between now and 2030. Just imagine the scale of that. Uh, India is clearly, clearly uh, suffering from the climate crisis, and that has changed the attitude of many people. Now, of course, India is a very diverse place, so it will not happen everywhere in the same, uh, same way. Uh, you know, the coal mining regions are, are also very often uh, the region suffering most economically. Um, uh, so, so we will have to find elements of just transition. But if you see the change of attitude, the engagement India is showing, and, and let, 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 I don't have to remind you, but it's the most populous country on the planet. So, you know, all this talk about just uh, uh, the US and, and, and China, India is a force to be reckoned with. 
in this in this area and they want to cooperate they need technology transfers they need to uh, work with us to create uh, value change they could produce their own solar panels at a hugely uh, elevated scale so i i think you know the world should be watching india more closely in this and i think india will increasingly engage on these issues india will i think india will take a huge step forward also as president of the g20 um and then of course it's india so sometimes they will step back from it again and there will be backlashes we know what happens but the movement um, uh, on balance is forward and 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 it's going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen with renewables in the next decade in india you know, let me just ask you this, because it, I agree with you that India's uh, tone has changed over the last decade. I mean, where, you know, say in 2012, it saw itself as the voice of the global south on every single issue. Um, today, it no longer sees itself as that, maybe other than pharmaceuticals, where it still does. But on almost every other issue, India likes to project itself as being a rising great power. Just from the time you spend with your counterparts uh, in India, you know, what do they tend to ask for uh, in negotiations? Is it money? Is it tech transfer? Uh, it's what? It's mainly tech tra transfer. It's investment opportunity, obviously. Um, and also, you know, they have things to offer. You know, when we say we want we, we want the green steel, and if you don't make green steel, we will impose a cardboard adjustment mechanism. They say, oh, we'll make green steel. No problem. We'll make electric cars. We can do that. So, I mean, there's a, a, a huge sense of self-confidence. And I, I see also the, uh, the economic circles, the industrial giants in India have sort of refound a lot of self-confidence and, and, and have chosen new directions that will be very interesting to follow as well. So, I mean, it's, it's and of course, there are other things that are not going as well as, as, as hope, but, but it, it will remain incredibly fascinating to see this happening and it's no longer the country just saying we lead the global south and uh, we will make sure that the global north is held accountable no it's 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 seeing itself increasingly as one of the major players on the on the planet on its own accord not necessarily as a champion of the global south but on its own accord you know, it occurs to me, if you have one more minute, um, that the one yes. thing we didn't talk about today is money. Um, mm -hmm. And I hear a lot about um, initiatives such as blended finance, uh, you know, or, or ways in which we can get public and private sector to cooperate together to sort of, you know, catalyze more spending. Um, when you sort of uh, in your meetings with with uh, other leaders from other countries, but also the private sector, do you see any big changes in terms of how much money we're able to sort of raise? Well, you know, if, if we're not able to uh, mobilize trillions, uh, we will not succeed. Uh, and trillions will never be coming from taxpayers. So that will have to come to a large extent also from the private sector. But the private sector wants us to be clear on the uh, regulations we uh, organize, on the way forward we see. They want us to change the international financial architecture. These are, these are the things we should be doing. And if we do that, and we are able to avoid uh, falling back into, into protectionism, we are able to create better uh, uh, international, if not global, at least cross-continental value chains. If we're able to do that, 
I mean, there's so much money still uh, uh, out there that's not being invested right now. There's so much money in, in all sorts of funds that could be invested in the right way. And there is a willingness to do that. But of course, these people who, who are responsible for these funds are also accountable to the people who fill these funds. So you have to make sure that we as public authorities create the right conditions for that. And we haven't yet done that, but we're moving in that direction. I really salute also Kristalina Georgieva's idea about changing the way the IMF works. I think rich countries should do far more to mobilize their SDRs in the interest of the global south. There's so much we can do, uh, mobilize the development banks in the right way. If we create those conditions, I'm absolutely convinced the financial sector, uh, um, the private financial sector will, will really massively start to invest. Now, I know you have to leave soon, so I'm going to pivot to Russia very quickly. I know you spent many years in the Soviet Union and Russia in the late 80s and early 90s as a diplomat. Um, given your involvement in the climate crisis, ultimately, how much of a setback do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine represents to the climate movement? Well... The thing is, our climate policy is centered on energy transition. And um, the, this war has heightened the sense of urgency on energy transition. So there's a couple of things we, we will be doing even more than we had uh, wanted to do before. We will save more energy. Uh, we've uh, upped our goals in that. We will transit into renewables even more quickly than we had anticipated. Um, so the danger to the movement, because, you know, if, if, if big, big chunks of our population uh, don't know how to get to the end of the month, the end of the planet is not their main concern. Um, so that's what Putin's playing. So he's trying to create political upheaval in the European Union by making energy bills for households uh, unaffordable, uh, impossible to pay. And by bringing our industry to the knees because they, they can't pay for it. And the second element is trying to freeze Ukraine, trying to get people to freeze in Ukraine so that they flee to Europe. So a combination of very high energy prices and millions of refugees, in Putin's view, is the way to get Europe to its knees. And if, if that happens, of course, the Green Deal is the last thing people will be thinking about, uh, obviously. But for now, uh, all of our member states, even those member states who were skeptical about the Green Deal to start with, understand that the only way we can reinforce our own sovereignty in the energy field is through renewables, uh, because we don't have our own fossil fuels. So that allows us uh, to, uh, to do what we need to do. It also allows us to convince industry that they will need to use a lot less fossil fuels in the future. That means that they will be starting to use green hydrogen uh, much quicker. They will be electrifying much quicker than uh, we had anticipated. So it's a bit of a mi mixed bag. But the fact that our, our Green Deal is, is a holistic approach, you can't just detach the energy transition from the other elements. So if the energy transition is pivotal and crucial, all the other elements will, will be glued to that and will also uh, be uh, put into execution. Um, last quick question, you know, dealing with Climate change can often seem so daunting. Uh, all of these summits can often seem frustrating and uh, hard to deal with. What gives you hope? Well, uh, it's it, I'm a grandfather. I've got two grandkids. 
And I don't want them, when they are adults, to be fighting wars over water and food. And if we don't fix this, this is what they will be doing. And I'm not, I'm not being, you know, uh, overly pessimistic. This is just a realistic assessment of where we are. Parts of the planet, if we overshoot two degrees, parts of the planet, large parts of the planet, will become inhabitable. And millions and millions of people will flee. Lots, uh, lots of places where today you can cultivate uh, uh, crops will no longer be arable land. And then people will start fighting over water and food. And we need to prevent that. And we can. I mean, the, the thing is, it's so daunting. It's so big. But it can be fixed. So let's fix it. On that note, Franz Timmermans, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Yure Wu. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com